Laban Ditchburn. Welcome to the Grassroots One podcast. Simon Hazeman, thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a thrill, exciting, and I'm muy bendito, which yes. I think means blessed. <laughs> you get, you're getting the language because uh, you got out, my friend. You got out of Australia and, and, and uh, got overseas. Um, wh- where are you? What, what's happening? So I am currently in a place called Playa de Carmen, which is in the Caribbean part of Mexico. It's about almost as far east as you can go, and it's about two hours south of Florida. Perfect. And, I, uh, I hear it's pretty open over there, they tell me. Yeah, it's uh, the Mexican president, I believe, and I need to check some news sources on this, sent back a whole truckload of US vaccines saying, no gracias, no thank you. <laughs> and uh, because that, the, the difference with, with Mexico is they don't have the social infrastructure from uh, being able to just pay people to stay at home. People mm. starve to death. Mm. Quintana Roo, I think I'm pronouncing it right, is the state of where I am, which is it's, I'm about 45 minutes from Cancun, which a lot of people would have heard of. Oh, yeah. Yep. And like I think 50% of this, the, the national tax revenue comes from this state with regards to tourism. So I think they had two months worth of lockdowns and then people were like, I need to feed my family and I'm mm. going to effing kill you if mm. you don't let me go back to work. So we're like, off you go. Yeah. So they still, there's still mask requirements inside for the, for the name brand shopping centers. Yep. And if you go into a Starbucks, which that doesn't affect me, so much uh you know they ask you to put one on but once you're in there you take it off no one gives uh, flying monkeys no look here um so victoria our our beautiful the garden state on the move um uh they they just uh announced um so no masks now outside um and uh, no masks kind of inside um except for like retail workers that are at the counter, I think is kind of the idea here. What I found really interesting though, is just the amount of people that are still, still wearing masks, um, just generally on the streets, walking around, you know, I'd say it's nearly maybe kind of 30 to 50% of people are still, you know, when they're walking by themselves down the road wearing masks. Um, so it's definitely had a, um, a psychological impact the last 18 months or two years or however long it's been now. Same here, and and it's something that's quite interesting, site because habit forming, you know, thirty days, sixty days, you know, a year and a half, nearly two years, is long enough to ingrain that. And a lot of people, it's a bit of a safety blanket. Uh, people, people that aren't extroverts and uh, are introverted, for lack of a better word, in many cases, I think like the anonymity that it mm. provides and the fact that they are keeping themselves out of the gun. Mm. But there's also an inherent fear as well. And yeah. uh, think what you want, but the research I've done shows that they do four-fifths of fuck all. Yeah. So if I really thought I was going to be saving anyone's life, I'd be wearing one. But Yeah, well, you know, I'm happy to put them on in, in, in closed areas with a bunch of people around if that's, that's the narrative. And, um, you know, I think it's kind of nearly more for other people's sake a lot of the time, you know, and... Um, but you know, generally speaking, you know, when you're outside in fresh air, walking around, it doesn't really seem to be something that's required. It was more of, I think like a lot of the restrictions, it was more about management, population management than it was about 
um, health a lot of the time and just, you know, minimizing movement, minimizing risk to whatever way they're modeling or tracking it. But yeah. It's, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, for fear of delving into a, a very powerful subject, uh, <laughs> it's not the thing I love today. about here, like I, I don't, I don't like wearing a shirt at the best of times. And that suits me over here because no one's wearing a shirt because it's 35, 33 <laughs> degrees and humid and, you know, crystal blue turquoise water. And I can go see the sunrise in the morning. And one, one thing that I would say about leaving Melbourne, Australia, and I've been away for a couple of months now, or maybe a month and a half rather, is the air of oppression that I felt lift off my shoulders. And I, some people will get what I'm saying and, and some people won't, but there's a lot of negative energy being generated in, in the state of Victoria. And I lived in, the, in South Bank, right near the CBD. So mm -hmm. maybe a bit more exposed to it than someone out in the suburbs. But once I was able to get on that plane and, and initially was in Germany for work, it was an extraordinary feeling. And it's like, I talk about this in my book, actually, like the gradual buildup of pressure. You don't realize how impactful it is until it's released. So yeah, just an observation. 100%. Um, you know, and it's still quite complex here, even though they have essentially, I think we hit 80 or 90%, and um, they have essentially opened it all up again for the vaccinated. Um, so, you know, but the city's, you know, no, nowhere near back yet. There's been a real kind of, it's still just slowly moving out. But, um, you know, that, that kind of feeling is very strong here. They're trying to pass the new pandemic bill laws and things through parliament at the moment. It's just an absolute shit show what's going on within politics here there's a real real divide kind of going on and you can feel it i had a similar experience um across what would it have been um was it what did I, when did all this kick off late 2019 right well we went into yeah. lockdown in in march 2020 yeah 2020 yeah. Um, march april yeah, see, I did that one, the the first two lockdowns, I did in a one-bedroom apartment across the road from Parliament House. So every time you'd leave your house on a Saturday, there would be mass amounts of pre police presence. And every time you'd walk outside, someone asks you, where are you going, checking your ID. So just that cognitive load on, as you're saying, that, that building of stress over a period of time. And, you know, after 18 months, I remember when I, I kind of escaped down the coast, my family... Um, living Torquay and I was trying to kind of explain what you were saying you know just around just the psychological difference you know not to diminish anyone else's experience but you know I, I ended up getting out of the city and down to Torquay for a couple of weeks just because my my amygdala was just firing to a point where I was literally getting like it was like someone was punching me with a, a pin it, like all, all over my body like this strange sensation um, and it was just stress. I just went to the doctors and they said, yeah, you just, just chronic stress you're under. Um, amazing in the way it impacts the kind of physical body and things like that as well, right? Oh, 100%. I'm a motivational speaker. And even I struggled, you know, throughout periods of it. I believe from, from what I can, from what I've heard and, you know, interactions with people that, I've, that I fared better than most because I, I did utilize the time very productively for a number of things that you can talk about. But one of the things I felt found so interesting, so I was, the trip to Germany, I was in Frankfurt to the, I managed to get away to the Frankfurt International Book Fair. There was nine people on a Boeing A380 
from Melbourne to Singapore and and 11 crew. That's a surreal experience in itself. That's Managed wild. to get to Frankfurt. Uh, went to the book fair, which was running at about 10% capacity. It's the la- largest book fair in the world. And then I was able to get to Berlin for, to record the audio book. And whilst I was in Berlin, first, first trip to Germany, beautiful country. People are amazing. I don't care what people say about grumpy German people. I, love I think I think they're telegraphing their own uh, insecurities onto the German people because <laughs> my experience was completely different. But I, was, I managed to go to the Berlin Wall right near where Hitler's bunker was, where him and Ava Braun took their own lives. Yep. And I was sitting there going, how surreal is this? And this is going to ruffle a few feathers, I'm sure. Surreal. World War II, the extermination of the Jewish people and other, and other minorities as well. And here I am and the stuff that's happening in Melbourne that is being, there is comparisons being drawn, not by me necessarily, lots of people in Europe and in, in South America or Central America have been asking me about it and comparing it in some cases to what was happening pre-World War II Germany. Mm. Now that might upset a few people, but hey, that's the yeah. reality of the situation. Yeah, look, you know, there's there's been people that live through it here that are talking about that as well. And it's more that, you know, I, I can't remember what the uh, video that I saw on it, but, you know, that it's just the psychology that leads up to it, you know, the stages of oppression that occur before that totalitarianism or, you know, and it's, that it's it's a road potential road that you're on you know if they don't give the power back you know then you can see those things starting to kind of evolve from there but it's um you know it's it's what a what a time to kind of be living through but um that is not why we're here today um i had the pleasure of getting an early release on on your your upcoming release of the book it's not out yet is it is it not yet not yet depends when you release this but it'll be barring any extenuating circumstances it'll be december 2021 december 2021 yeah bet on yeah. you um yeah labor well, i had the pleasure of finishing the book um uh, this week and it's a it, it's a great read if, I, if i'm honest with you there's um a lot of the story i can relate to not only in the um the transformation and it's a great story of, of gambling sex drugs transformation and love um but but also in um in just where it's where it happened you know it happened in my hometown town of melbourne um i could feel i could feel the places i've been to those spots so i i think i i think and i won't spoil it for everybody but you know i, I know those alleyways that you speak about in the book um, and, and I know I'm sure a few of those venues and things as well that you're talking about, but it's, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it, man. The, the authenticity is super powerful. Um, I, you know, I, I laughed, I cried through it a little bit. There's a couple of, couple of parts in there that, that, you know, really, really kind of hit home for me. So it's, um, wow. so it's, yeah, it's a great, great book. So I'm really, really excited to kind of dig into it a little bit with you today in, in, in what parts of it you want to share anyway. Well, I mean, firstly, thanks for reading it. Secondly, uh, I'm so grateful that you were impacted by it as much as you were. I mean, that's that's really why I wrote it. It was to help people. And if you got one thing out of it that's going to benefit your life, then then the job is done. You know. Yeah, so. man. Look, there's um, there's so many parts of it that I kind of want to want to chat through. And again, I don't want to spoil it for anyone because because I, I recommend it's a it's a great re- read and. Um, you know, not, it took me about a, about a week to kind of get through it amongst all the other things that I do in life. Um, um, but it's, a, it, it's just a great representation, I guess, of someone that, that does 
that has been through that transition in this. And I just love the way you've kind of structured the book. You know, anyone could read it and you've got these really nice condensed lessons at the end of each chapter that give people kind of like the key takeaways. And it's, it's quite a practical book. But um, before we get into the, to the, the depths of it all, um, give us the story. How, how did it come about? Like, uh, I won't spoil it all for people, but, but, but set it up a little bit for us and, and tell me about, um, you know, what led you to the transition and, and, and what have you. Well, I can take it right back, if you like. Because I think that's important. And, and really, it started six years ago, give or take, at a moment of rock bottom. And I'd hit a few of them. And I found myself sitting up in my bed on a Tuesday night at midnight, gambling on a horse race in a country I wasn't in with money that wasn't mine. And with three bottles of appropriately priced Pinot Noir coursing its way through my veins, I noticed a phone number in the bottom left-hand corner of the laptop that having been on the, the website many, many times, I'd never seen this number before, Simon and I. And I picked up my, my phone and I called the number instinctively and it was the number for the gambler's helpline. And a lady by the name of Mary picked up the phone and I'll never know her real surname, but I call her Mary Magdalene <laughs> because whether she knew it or not, she was my guardian angel. And the conversation we had transformed me forever. She spoke about the high rates of suicide that problem gamblers experience as a result of losing everything. And it's way faster than, than the other addictive or hedonistic behaviours because of how quickly you can lose it all. And she put me in touch with a, a gambling psychologist whose name was Lee. And I got access for free, for a year and a half free gambling counselling. And after the very first session... She asked me a question about my mum and I broke down into tears and, and came to learn about the coping mechanisms that children develop as a result of growing up in a less than nurturing environment, which for me, and that's another word for dysfunction, by the way, or trauma, for me was nothing more innocuous than, than divorce. And from that moment forth, it started this transformation that I've been on and, and I'm very proud to stand before the audience today to share that I've been able to knock drinking and drugs and gambling and philandering and negative self-talk. I've lost a power of weight, fixed an autoimmune disease that I had, met the, met the woman of my dreams and found my purpose. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so now I've got an obligation in my own mind, at least to share my stories because what people think of me, Simon is none of my business. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe what resonated with you in the book was how raw it was because I've been able to take ownership of everything that I got up to and use it as my superpower, as my fuel. Mm. And when you take own it, full ownership, in my opinion at least, you reclaim back all the power. And so I can talk about all the shenanigans. And if you, if you might imagine Charlie Sheen meets Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. <laughs> That's a good description, actually. That, that makes me reminds me of the book a little bit. And so here I am and it's redefined my career path and I'm now on my way to being known as the world's most positively influential speaker. Man, you are, you, you, you definitely are. And I, I get a lot of energy from our conversations and, and um, the pleasure of having a couple of those over the last kind of six or so months. Um, 
I think it's a cool cool place to anchor a little bit on because I think that you know we talk a lot about mental health on the podcast and I'm really interested in you know alternative therapies and and emerging therapy emerging medicine and science around mental health around you know as you were talking about before those trauma bonds on um, you know the overactive nervous systems and self-regulation and all these kind of things we dig into on the podcast um, but you know what one of the things and like you speak about in the book is just you know how impactful Mary Magdalene was for you how impactful the therapy was for you and I think it's a it's a great thing to call out that um, just the just the impact that reaching out to somebody can have um, you know I went through a similar thing throughout the lockdowns as we were talking about before and reaching out to the counsellors you know reaching out to a psychologist to speak to them was just a fantastic step you know to start to compartmentalize the experience that was that was going on but what i wouldn't mind doing is setting up um the conversation a little bit you've got if you don't mind me sharing two of the stats um around gambling that you had in the book because i thought that were, that was super interesting um i didn't know this about gambling you know i thought drugs or whatever it might be would be we far more impacting um but you know that the, the according to you know the national council of problem gambling one in five pathological gamblers attempt suicide um, which is at a rate higher than any other addictive disorder. Um, and then you're saying in New Zealand, the, the suicide rate for male use in 2017, 2017 was the third highest um, across the organisation for economic cooperation and development. Um, they're m- massive stats, um, especially when it comes around, it comes, you know, it comes to gambling. You were digging into it. You were talking about it a little bit before. Do you, do you do you know you know much about that? Like why why gambling more so than say like drug addiction, those kind of things? Well, it's well two things at, at Crown Casino in Melbourne, which gets a, a mention in the book. That they have, I know for a fact that they during pre COVID times they had two to three deaths a week of suicide in the in the bathrooms, and they have special back entrances where they can you know evacuate the corpse and uh i mean that's that's not one of those wife tales that that's that's comes comes from the head of security there but to answer your question i sort of touched on it a little bit before it Mm. seems to be that that once you lose everything financially and if you imagine that certainly in my own experience i borrowed to gamble I didn't necessarily steal. I didn't get quite to the point where mm-hmm. I was stealing anything, but I suppose that's a bit ambiguous at times. But if you can imagine if you are chasing your losses, if you are trying to fill a, an unfillable pit and you blow all the money when you've already burnt all your relationships and maybe you don't feel like you have someone to reach out, mm-hmm. except an independent person who's not going to judge yep. that's at the end of a gambling helpline, then I can imagine how that might be that might affect you i i wasn't at that point where i'd severed any relationships there were there had been small amounts of relationships that had been tested but not to that extent but certainly i can imagine people and i i know of people that have done that yeah look and and because it is such a the gambling one's such a subtle one you know i know when i used to work in nightclubs and bars i'd finish work at some ungodly hour in the morning with my 300 dollars cash in hand paycheck at you know maybe um uh you know whatever whatever time it was um 
uh, um, and I'd go on the way home. I was living in St Kilda at the time, and I would jump on the tram from the city, and I'd catch it from the front of Crown, and I'd go in there and play pokies at 3 a.m. in the morning, and then just blow all my money, and and walk out. And there's this strange kind of feeling like it's, you know, the loss, but also that excitement of the loss. It's kind of like it feeds into that part of yourself that you know is lacking, that part of yourself that doesn't feel. Um, it's worthy of whatever it might be. And the loss nearly is the hit that you get as well as the rush of the win. Um, it's such a complex addiction. And and why I think for me anyway it's scary is the fact that um, I was watching as, as terrible as the AFL has been over the last couple of years because of COVID to watch with the lack of crowds and all that kind of stuff. But I, I, don't, I don't have free-to-air TV. I don't watch free-to-air TV. And I went to my friend's place and, you know, we had the football on or something. And every second commercial is a gambling commercial. you got to turn on the radio. Every second commercial is a, another gambling app. And, you know, it, it's, it's so prominent. Imagine if they did that with, you know, cocaine or some other drug that was on TV constantly just bombarding kids who follow football and... You know that this gambling is is such a, is so ingrained in in um, you know in the culture here in Australia. It's just something I hadn't really realised, but it's quite a scary thought to think how prominent it is. hundred percent. And I think something that I think people should know about my own views. I don't think gambling should be banned, or I don't think any of this stuff should be locked away. Not at all. It, it's the insidious nature of where the money's coming from. And it's like everything in life, pharmaceutical, big food, all the other stuff, right? Like I was in the supermarket the other day and, and Kellogg's have combined with Krispy Kreme and they've got a Krispy Kreme crunchy <laughs> breakfast cereal. Come on, kids, get on that. <laughs> and I was just like, come on, man. Like you couldn't get away with that in other parts of the world. But it's... Uh, it's, it's the reason why people are gambling that mm. we need to look at. It's that you, like, you, shouldn't, ban mar- you shouldn't ban marijuana. You shouldn't, you shouldn't criminalise these things. Mm. And you shouldn't tax them into a, an oblivion where they are forced underground, where they can't be better regulated, right? We need to give power back to the, the people that are on the front line yeah, in many ways. 100%. Like if you even look at what... Um... You know, what's occurred with the royal latest Royal Commission, you know, that we just seem to just do Royal Commissions now every time a, a politician or a corporation gets in trouble. But, you know, we've had a, a, a Royal Commission into Crown Casino, you know, criminal activity, massive money laundering, you know, underworld crime, all of these kind of elements that came out through the commission and literally their statement was, uh, brings too much revenue for the state. So we're just going to put a regulator in place and some new laws for them and off they go. You know, there's, you, there's one law for an individual, but if, you, if you're bringing economic support or you're bringing, you know, money into the coffers, um, there's just different laws for you. There's different rules. And, it's, um, and I think that disparity, you know, unfortunately just, just fuels some of that um, you know, acceptance of these things, you know, but when it comes down to personal choice or vaccines or whatever it might be, the... You know, it's a it's a whole another story for for the individual versus versus the collective. It's a it's a bit of a scary thought at times. Yeah, and, and something that I'm a big proponent of is the truth, mm. right? And I just want the truth so I can make an informed decision. 
I don't care that the truth truth might hurt my feelings because I mean that's and that's a whole nother podcast. But like, I want to know the truth so I can make an informed decision. Mm. And if people knew, smart young, mainly men that are the ones that predominantly gamble, smart enough to know that hey, just letting you know, if you get involved in this, it's pretty likely that if you do it long enough, you're going to develop an unhealthy uh, habit with it. Mm. And it's and it's really unattractive to women if you want to if you're heterosexual male and there's a litany of other things that you could include in there as well. And then you go, hmm. And then maybe the mates won't egg each other on. I, I've seen it since I've given up because it's six years in December since I placed a bet, right? Mm. And and I'm very fortunate in the sense that I've really killed any desire to escape in the way that I used to. So I don't have any desire to do it. I can be around it. I don't like being around it, but I can be around it. It doesn't cause me any problems. So. And do you think that's because... You just have built up other elements in your life that are more important. Your values have shifted or, you know, is it just that that part of yourself that used to look for the hit, look for the win, the validation, dopamine, whatever it might be? Is it is it just that you're finding that through other avenues in life now, do you think? Yes and no. I, I've found better addictions in, in some ways, but I... It's real. It's a really important distinction. I was I, from a very young age. I was playing video games for hours on end, from like a young Sega Master System or what, whatever. And then it was movies and TVs. And I'd go mm. and visit my father on the weekends when you know mum and dad had split up and whatever. And I just would immerse myself watching Star Wars on repeat or whatever it might be. And then as I got a little bit older to, to smoke cigarettes and do drugs and alcohol and then when gambling that came, it, it just, if and then food, like if it's not any of those things, I could have been, you know, around Olympic athletes and maybe become a, an Olympic gold medalist in swimming. <laughs> maybe not swimming because I'm negatively buoyant, but you know what I mean? <laughs> and so, so what I do now, I have clear purpose and when the when the why becomes clear, the how becomes really easy. So I finally figured out my reason for being on the planet, and it's service. It's to help people that want help. Clear distinction. And so now, knowing that going and gambling or getting on the gas or putting lines of coke up my nose is misaligned with those core core beliefs and values. And something else that's really interesting to me, at least, is I was a, a very left leaning liberal voter once upon a time and in a very short period of time i've become very conservative who the left might call uh right wing (laughs) but um they're just idiots right and uh it's so interesting like who would have thought your political views might sway so drastically so uh, that's something we could discuss as well. If you they like, they but... say that tends to happen when uh, when you get a little bit older, when you start to make a little bit of money, when your value systems shift, um, you're coming out of your 20s into your 30s, getting close to your 40s, and then next thing you know, you're a Republican. Not that that's uh, relevant in the Australian <laughs> crowd, but, you know, you, you switch sides or you, you do. I, you know, I use, I, I, look, I'm, I'm, I'm liberal, left, liberal, like, um, yeah, yet over the years, I'm very much a centre-right, you know, centre-left probably in re- realistic terms, but I think that's pretty blurred these days anyway. Um, I loved yeah. what you are saying before around the, the, the who and the why. There's a, a quote from Nietzsche that says, um, he, he who has a why can bear almost any how. 
and it's one of my one of my favorite quotes that's in my morning affirmations that quote um being able to anchor back on on the why um you can kind of you can overcome such such great adversity and you know you talk about it a lot um in the book which i want to get into a little bit later um i've got a little bit of an arc of of things to kind of talk through but um uh you know you you tell some you know the the storytelling at the start of the book's really really cool just the way you um there's some stories in there um the, the mary parkin stories a uh, molly molly parkin story is wild wild and i'll leave that one for the book but that's wild i checked out the links at the end of the book as well um and it, it was just crazy and um there's so much of um of the book, I think in those early chapters, especially for me, as I was saying before, that I could relate to, that I could um, I could feel myself in a lot of those kind of situations and 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 what have you. But um, as we get into that, because there's some cool stuff I want to dig into around that transition. But so you know, you spoke to Mary Magdalene, you got on the road uh, to to transition. Um, you started to kind of take that ownership and accountability o- over yourself. What were the steps? Give us the give us the broad strokes of of how you would compartmentalize the the transformation. Like, what were the key elements to to starting to move forward? Well, the the major one that I can remember because I, I had I had I journaled everything, then this would be a different conversation. But I didn't. There was periods where I did write a few things down, but but fundamentally, it was the work that I did with the psychologist because it allowed me to share some of the burden and and that's why you know people are like oh you're oversharing or whatever i think that's horseshit I, like you've got to the, the only issue with sharing too much is when you share it with someone who doesn't respect that that conversation or you've kind of dumped it on them without any permission. Dumping, right? Like which right? is a trauma response apparently, you know, if some people are hyper um, uh, vulnerable and they'll do that to dump their stuff on other people without that energy transfer. So yeah, I, I understand that for sure. Yeah. And then I, like y- y- most people have heard this, but like when you're dumping 90% of people don't care and the <laughs> other 10% are glad it's happening to you. Right. So, which I, I find very entertaining, but as I, as I explored, like I knew that if I got to the root cause of why I was escaping, then I could fix it. I just wanted to reverse engineer it. And as I acquired more and more knowledge and got introduced to a few other reading materials, certainly one book that I reference in the book, Facing Codependence by Pierre Melody, given to me by a friend of mine who was going through drug recovery, mm. was a real catalyst because it explained all of why the behavior developed. And what I came to realize is that whilst what I experienced growing up uh, was very common, it's not healthy or normal. And so I learned not to diminish my own experience, which is a really important distinction for people to realize because comparing your trauma to someone else's is just, it's just a waste of time, right? Compare yourself to the person you were the day before, no one else, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and then as I started to acquire more and more of this knowledge, I started to take care of myself better, mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and got to a point after a couple of years where I actually was like, holy shit, I actually love who I am. Mm-hmm. And and then the moment that you get to that point, I believe, is when shortly thereafter I met the woman of my dreams in the streets of Melbourne, Stone Cold Sober. 
that was one of the other parts of the book that that got the uh, got the emotions running a little bit. Um, the story about Anna, it's 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 a beautiful. Um, you talk about a lot of different um, uh, da- dating exploits uh, uh, throughout the book, but but that one at the end is um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great great story. And so going back to that, um, you know, you were saying you, you you know as we do, we we develop childhood trauma. Um, you know, it's subjective and relative to the dysfunction within the family dynamics and those kind of things. I, I found what I've become aware of, especially over the lockdowns, is just the um, the negative thought, that the inner critic, and becoming very aware of that. Um, you know, a lot of the time we can be harder on ourselves than we can on anybody else. And you know, I, I personally became very aware of kind of that. Uh, you talk about it, I think, about like a swear jar. Um, the negative thought swear jar where you put a dollar in the jar uh, every time you have a negative thought. D- tell me a little bit about your negative thoughts. What, what were you telling yourself before, um, you know, before the transition? That's just a point. Well, yeah, for sure. And just a very clear distinction. It's negative self-talk, which which is ties in with exactly what you're saying. But it's the negative self-talk is something that I have totally removed from my vernacular. And... People are like, oh, how can you do that? Like, especially with tall poppy syndrome, self-deprecating humor, you know, any number of like diminishing behaviors that Kiwis, Australians, POMs, Canadians, you know, tend to exhibit. So if you, if you maybe, can you re-ask the question for me one more time, just so I'm clear on what you're Yeah, so just like, um, so for me, I'll give you, I'll give you an expert, like, you know, my, my inner critic, you know, my my brain will always kind of tell me that like I'm not good enough is is kind of what I go through, you know, um, you know, in my mind a lot of the time is just that um, that that those those limiting beliefs, you know, it's always kind of like a, a fear of um, your potential or you're not good enough or you, you know, for me, like I was kept down at school as an ex- just one example, right? So I don't think I'm smart enough. There's all of these kind of limiting beliefs that I tell myself, you know, or people tell themselves generally, you know, I was just interested to know um, kind of what yours were and, and then what you did to start to obviously, you know, change that monkey brain um, to start to be a little bit more positive, you know. It's a really interesting question because it was periods of my life or parts of my life rather that I was bulletproof. And, and had a lot of confidence in what I was doing, built on a pretty shaky base. Mm-hmm. But I'm just trying to think of any obvious ones. I think I struggled with weight for a long time, even though I wasn't morbidly obese. I was 30 pounds of weight heavier, mm. but I was, so I lost 60 pounds of body weight and then put on 30 pound of muscle like that's how it equalized. So my physique is totally transformed. And in terms of like wanting to be with a really, the uh, uh, the caliber woman that I wanted to be with for a very long time was, was drifting off. Mm-hmm. So that was a self-talk thing. Mm-hmm. What, you know, didn't have any money, was overweight. Like how would I get someone hot? Yeah. And so, and not even functional, like just hot. Maybe crazy hot on the crazy hot scale, right? <laughs> and and so you so that one particular part means that I would settle for lower caliber partners. 
And that's not a slight on the person. No. That's just like in terms of the person that I dreamed about being with my whole life was like here and what I was settling for was down here. And of course, that the, the relationship never flourished because we're, mm. we're totally wrong places, right? So that, that's a really obvious one. Yeah, I, I, you know, they, they talk about, I was talking about it um, with Emmanuel on, a, on the podcast that I just, just did and, and he was talking about, you know, that we, that the world's a projection and we, it's a mirror. So these relationships that we call in will be mirrors of the parts of ourselves that we're repressing, you know. So if we believe this certain part of ourselves will bring people to us that mirror that belief, even if we're not aware of it, even if it's a subconscious belief, and that's the mirror. That's why relationships are so powerful and traumatic and scary and all those kind of things because people are showing up to show you parts of yourself that you're you know, denying or, or believing as well. And, and so those, and they'll, those relationships will keep coming until you either level up or you know, stay at that level or whatever it might be. So um, yeah. yeah, that makes sense. So, so, and the question would be, how did I, how did I get over that challenge? Well, yep. this, this ties in with what I touched on before about the self-love and, and what people forget, especially men or heterosexual men that they, they feel like they need to go for the girl, like just find your purpose and you'll attract all the women you ever need, whether you want to remain monogamous to that, or you want to play the field. Mm. And, and you'll probably find that the former will, will serve you better, right? So for me, like the, it was an arduous process and, and my, my rate of growth was very high, exponential really. Mm. And so I was leveling up uh, very quickly. And, you know, you're talking about the dating, like I went on 150 first dates over a, what ended up being a two-year period and I don't know if you work out the numbers on that. It's a few a week, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I and most of those were when I was sober, and I got really good at it. And and you know I was learning how to to date women. I was learning how to self love. I was learning how to conquer addiction. I was learning how to eat better. I was mm. like I'm, I've read over five hundred books in four and a half years now on all almost all nonfiction apart from a few modern day fa- um, parables. Uh, and you know, if you look at a man, he, he's the result of, you know, in five years, he's a result of the people he spends the time around and the books he reads very common scientific fact. Yeah. It, and that was one part of the book I really liked is that you were talking about, I think I've got a little note here somewhere, but you were talking about, um, just exactly that, like the, the, you know, yeah, f- friends to heart, friends are hard to clear when trying to get sober, you know, it's, um, uh, you are, uh, um, the byproduct representation of, you know, the five, five friends around you, the five closest people in your life. And, you know, if you're in an environment where they're doing drugs and gambling and smoking and whatever it might be, it's, it's so hard to break the, those addictive cycles when everyone around you is kind of feeding into that same behavior. And you're kind of in this trauma bond relationship with your friends in a sense as well, which makes it even more complex because you've got to let go of people you've got to change your values you've you know and that it, it is as you said arduous work and and, and takes a long time you know it, it takes time to shift into that new kind of space yeah well the, one of the key key points and i harp on about this a bit in the book is about how ruthless i i have gotten with eliminating people in my life that don't serve me well and people might be saying oh wow like 
you know, one or two people. I'm talking a lot of people that I no longer kick around with, right? And it's not that they're bad people. It's just that we don't have anything in common anymore. Some of them, there's a couple of bad eggs in there. Don't get me wrong. I've, I've done some real bad shit too, but that includes family members as well. Yep. And people are like, oh, you can't do that. You can't do that. To your fa-. Well, fucking watch me. Mm. And what's happened now that a bit of time's passed, the key people in my family and friends, but this when we're talking about family, this is the beauty of this huge gamble that I took is that people are coming back into my life because I've been able to set clear boundaries. And that includes people like my mum. Mm-hmm. Now, my mum and I are the closest we've ever been. I'm 41 years old. And that's the best relationship that we've ever had. She said to me the other day, Laban, I'm so proud of what you're doing. And, and she didn't, like, I always knew she was proud of me and she loved me. But there was times there where that was like, really? And, and however important that is for you in your life, for me, it was a big deal. Mm. The pain of being around people that were dragging me, dragging me down wasn't worth it. I was willing to forego and it ended up being a huge gamble that paid massive dividends. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And it's, it's, you know, and they, they call it kind of doing the work, you know, that self-awareness and being able to start changing those relationships, you know, setting those boundaries. Like um, you, you had a great line in there by not setting clear boundaries uh, for your own needs. Um, you created micro contracts and like, and that you're kind of talking about that in the relationship sense. Um, and I just thought it's, uh, yeah, the, the micro contract is you do because you're not having that boundary with yourself. You start making these contracts with people to fulfill that need or fulfill that validation requirement. And you're not aware of it. They're not aware of it. Um, but, you know, and that, then you can become resentful and passive aggressive and, and all of these kind of things. And it fuels that negative behavior again, that self-doubt that you were talking about before, I think. And that's, you exactly touched on what happens if you don't, if you don't manage it early, it doesn't get better as you get older. It gets worse because you constantly get pushed, pushed over your lines because you've allowed it. Mm. You're an idiot. Mm. You're a sucker. And I say that with love. I, don't say that about yourself. Like I'm probably getting a bit too excited, but you know, you're not an idiot. You're not. <laughs> no, a, I, no, I, go, I love go. you. Sending love and abundance your way. Right. <laughs> I, I recall that. I can't preach about no negative self-talk and I'm slagging off other people, but yeah, look, hey. it's, it's uh, it's I'm I'm really passionate about it because I've seen it pay massive dividends, as I said, mm. and I've been on the receiving end of being cut out of people's lives as well. You got to, if you can if you give it, you you got to be able to take it. Yeah, yeah. We used to have a that's fine. We used to have a joke with my um uh, uh with a group of friends. You know, every couple of years, someone would get cut off. That used to be the thing we'd say because you know they just push themselves to a point where it's like, all right, man, you need to take it. You need to take an out. You need to, you know, you need to step down for a little while and just get your, get your shit together, and then then you can come back and hang out with us again. Um, and the, the part the part in there around um, um, what I loved is the the letter to your uh, the text message to your mum in there. Um, you know, you were talking about that kind of family dynamic, which most families go through, but that kind of you know fighting that can kind of happen within the family dynamic, um, and as you started to evolve, you know, the way you approached those situations started to change. And I just really liked how you were kind of talking, like anchoring back on the gratitude. Um, and that, you know, seemed to be a bit of a catalyst for the relationship with your mum and, and, and things like that. Well, this is a really good follow-up to what we're just talking about. I didn't cut these people off and say, go fuck yourself. <laughs> I forgave them all. 
Mm. I forgave all of them, and I and I have forgiven all of them. And and you you don't forgive for other people. That that is a part of it. At some point, you forgive to let go of the burning coal of of anger. And you know, with the podcast that I host, I just bring guests on in most cases to help me solve my problems. And I had a guy, Dr. Fred Luskin. <laughs> he's saying raising his hand as well. Yeah, I had right. a guy, Dr. Fred Luskin, who wrote Forgive for Good. And he's he founded the Stanford Forgiveness Project. This guy's been directly responsible for mothers whose children were murdered to forgive the perpetrator. You know, mm-hmm. IRA bomb blast uh, victims that have forgiven the, the perpetrator. An Auschwitz survivor hugged and forgave the camp commander. Like if, mm. if they can do that, I can forgive my mum for the for mm. the dysfunction that she, you know, blessed upon me, which ends up making a really great story for a book. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And it, look, it is like that, um, and you do, you had, there was one of the lines that I wrote down around um, around um, forgiveness because it it, it really is. It, it, it's, you know, it, it's, I think, in forgiving others, there's an element of forgiving yourself as well. You, you, you tend to, you know, going back to that, you know, um, uh, negative self-talk and, and what have you, you, you can you can beat yourself up around the way that you feel about things. So by having gratitude for what you have, by forgiving others, and you don't necessarily have to forget the situation or forgive the situation necessarily, but you forgive, you know, um, you understand that it happened because it needed to happen. Um, and that enables you to start to kind of forgive yourself or maybe potentially you have to forgive yourself first uh, and then you can start to work on forgiving others. I'm not exactly sure how that process rolls out. but Well, I think certainly forgiving yourself first gives you the, the, uh, the, the tools to be able to forgive other people. And there's a lady whose name I'll grab in a minute who experienced the most horrendous childhood in the history of anything, as far as I've heard, abused sexually from her father and then abandoned and physically abused, all kinds of stuff. And she talks about wounds versus scars. And she she says that people, people say to her, have you healed? Because she's a speaker and she talks about the stuff. She's written a number of books. And, and she says, I have scars, but I no longer have the wounds. And... For, and I, you know, if we didn't, I heard this the other day, actually, if we didn't have memories, we'd be dead, right? Like mm-hmm. there will always be that memory, but it's about being able to separate yourself from the experience and look at it like you're looking at it at a movie theater mm-hmm. and you're seeing it on the screen, um, which is something I find so interesting. Do you think that's a skill that you d- develop over time? Do you think as you get better to get better in kind of compartmentalizing the past? So let's say a new situation comes up for you now. Do you find yourself being able to go through that process a lot quicker? If something you know, it's, you know, things things always occur that are you have a bad day, something business goes on, or whatever it might be. You might beat yourself up a little bit. Do you find yourself kind of moving through those things a little bit quicker these days? Uh, I do, and I've got a great, great technique for that as well. Uh, her name is Dr. Bridget Cooper, by the way, Dr. Bridget Cooper. Uh, she's an American lady, I believe. So the technique is this, right? It's not even really a technique. It's it's a life, it's a life skill. Mm-hmm. And you, if people could only understand the power that they have of adversity, and I talk about the gift of adversity. If you understand that whatever horrible shit you went through as a kid 
is now your superpower and now your fuel. And you're like, oh, Laban, what do you mean? If I didn't, if I hadn't gone through all that adversity, I wouldn't be in the position to tell the story that I'm telling these days and, yeah. and now living my purpose. My life, Si, is a daily miracle, a daily miracle. And you talk about adversity, and I had permission to talk about this. Yeah. Anna and I have experienced the loss of 13 consecutive miscarriages and two ectopic pregnancies, one of which nearly killed her in 2019. Crazy. Do I look like someone who's carrying the burden of that around? Mm. When you see Anna, when you look at her, does she look like someone who's carrying the burden? No. no she does. You've met her. Yeah. Yep. And now she's on her way to sharing her story. Her mm. story's just getting warmed up. Mm. I'm the world's best courage coach, but she's the bravest person I know. Mm. And it's about any time, not saying that I'm not knocked off my center when bad shit happens. Even getting out of Germany to, to Mexico was one of the most trialing periods of my life because of the restrictions and the, you know, being able to travel internationally at the moment is, is by far the most challenging it's ever been yep. in the history of the world. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but it's like, all right, I know I'm going to get a really wonderful benefit off the back of this. It'll take a bit of time potentially, but, and then you just, just let it pass. Just it. Just observe it and let it pass. Mm. And then sure enough, something magical will come out of it. You've got some perspective again, particularly if you're getting a bit too cocky around things, and then bang. Humble pie. Thanks very much. Yeah. 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 Big All slice. Right. So on the on the topic of adversity, because this is this is um just again, the book it really hit home on a bunch of different levels for me, which which I really, really enjoyed. Um, one of which is your journey from from um, from couch to marathon to ultra running um, and in a sequence of events and timelines that um, I come from, a, I, I talk about it a lot, I come from a family of ultra athletes um, uh, which which created some of my stories for myself as well over the years but um, you're, you're, when you're talking about that adversity, that challenge training you know, and, and I'd love you to share a little bit about that journey and we can, if you're open to it, digging into that a little because, you know, what you did, how you started started running um, and then, you know, I think within weeks you had entered into a marathon. I'll, I'll leave you to the story, but um, it, it's, a, it's, and I know the races as well that you're talking about and I know those roads in Trelgan and so that you, you speak about a little bit, but yeah, tell us a little bit about that. So, you, you know, you obviously started the transition, you started doing therapy, a little bit of journaling, um, and, and then you started into this adversity training. Tell me a little bit about the journey um, into, in, into running. Well, it, it really started from that letter to my mother, the text message to my mother that you mentioned earlier, right? When I sent it to her on Mother's Day in 2018, so it was like May 11th, I burst into the most guttural weeping I've ever experienced in my life, a huge emotional dump, and I felt liked like a physical weight was lifted off a yoke of my shoulders. Mm. Later that week, I asked out a really beautiful girl for the first time in my life, if she'd go out with me, stone cold sober. And she said, yeah. And that was like on a Thursday. And I was so pumped from this, this huge glass ceiling destruction moment in my life that I went running on the Sunday morning. Mm. And I furthest I'd run was five kilometers at that point. And I ran 26 Ks, 
24. Non-stop. Oh, no, no breakfast, just black coffee. Which is six laps of the tan, if anyone. Six laps of the tan. If anyone's trying to plus, plus the distance that. to and from home. That's right. That's right. And and uh, in a moment of like euphoria, signed up for the Tarelgan Marathon, not realizing how close it was, and it was it was fourteen days later. <laughs> and and uh, I ran twenty seven kilometers the following Sunday. And then I ran the Tarelga Marathon in three hours, 56, 47, which yeah. uh, less than 40% of marathon runners go under four hours. Oh, yeah, apparently. I think, think so. Or 20, 25% maybe. Maybe, could, maybe less, 40. yeah. You could be right. We'll have to check in on that. And just, just for the audience, <clears throat> excuse me, um, just for the audience, uh, Tarelgan, <laughs> those roads, and you talk about it in the book, if anyone's ever done the drive from, from Melbourne to Gippsland and and towards Trailgan and Sale and Bensdale. I'm a Bensdale boy originally. Um, you talk about Mildura in the book as well. My my other half of the family's from Mildura. So once again, very very a lot of connections for me. But it is a dead yeah. straight gravel road, or it was for many years anyway. And it was it's the most brutal long stretch of nothingness that that <laughs> road. Yeah. And to drive it is obscene anyway and i could only imagine you know 43 point whatever k's um in those it must have just been a brutal race to do well it was uh imagine imagine your car breaking down and having to run 42.2 k's to go and get fuel for it or something uh in the middle of nowhere with you know the only people in your chair squad were cows and sheep (laughs) and uh but it was it was the it was the first available marathon uh, it's Australia's oldest marathon, and, yeah, I, and I mentioned that. this in the book. It's yeah. also Australia's most boring marathon. Yeah, for sure. Beautifully yeah. run. People are amazing, but boring AF. <laughs> but it'll forever be my my first marathon. Yeah, man. It's um um it, it's an amazing it's an amazing thing to do the the marathon running. When I when I started what I would call my transition in uh, two thousand, uh, call it. Uh, 2015 is when I really started to, to make some progressive moves. And I did the Melbourne Marathon, um, beautiful, flat, some undulating hills, great crowd, you're in the city, you're running on the beach. It's a lot of distractions for the race. Um, but the first, I did it I did it in 15 and I did it in 16. And, um, and it's a similar time with the sub four time that you were talking about. Um, and the first year, um, my my um, kind of like catch cry or my mantra was victory loves preparation. So I, I, again, as I was saying before, I come from a family of ultra runners. So it was a perfectly executed race, the training program, the diets, all of it. It was like professional level training anyway, not not times, but training. But the second one, um, I I, I did what I'm affectionately terming, um, uh, I did a Laban. Um, which was undercooked, not prepared, and I was smoking. I was doing all this bad stuff for myself, and I'm like, you know what? This year I'm going to see if I can use mental override to just push through that pain barrier. Um, and then when I was reading your accounts of that, um, that you were just taking that whole concept to a, to a whole nother level, um, what was it like in, in the race to, to kind of push yourself through that? Well, I ran with a very good friend of mine, Sam Skinner, Dr. Sam Skinner who gets a big mention in the book. He's a really mm. great friend of mine and, and the only man brave enough to join me on my, my uh, saga. 
And he he hadn't run at all for about seven or eight months. He did a 27-kilometer run on the Thursday prior to the race. So at about mile five, he was already cooked. I was in good shape and, and really didn't start hurting until the 30-kilometer mark. So it's still under a bit of debate whether I would have gone faster because we had a commitment to each other that we, we would wait and cross the line together no matter what. No man left behind, right? And that man. came, that paid huge dividends for me at a later race, as you read about. Yeah. But he uh, he was in a lot of pain and I used all the empathy and mindfulness and gratitude and a lot of emotional energy to get him over the line because he, he was in a lot of pain. He's 10 years younger than me. He had run a marathon before, but he'd been out of the game for a while. And, uh, and we passed you know, arm and arm. So it, it was, you know, one of my favorite parts of that, those chapters in, with regards to the run is the, the elbow flexor muscle that uh, no one knows about. Uh, I know, I know that muscle. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we should give some context. So when I, you know, your feet hit the ground 43,000 times on average for a marathon, right? And other parts of your body move 43,000 times. And the elbow flexor muscle, uh, for people listening, is quite near the elbow. It's sort mm -hmm. of on the forearm part. And it's holding your arm. It's carrying weight. And if you've got a bit of muscle mass like I do, it really hurts by the end yep. of the race, man. <laughs> like more pain than any other part of my body, I reckon. I found that quite interesting. Yeah, they. Um, uh, so my old man, um, he's, again, yeah, he's... he's you know, he's mid, mid, mid to late 60s now. Sorry, Dad, not sure. But, you know, he's um, he's still doing ultras. Like, he's just one of those kind of guys. And he was telling me, um, he's telling me there's a technique to if you hold your fingers so, uh, together, um, uh, your index and your, your thumb together, um, it, it, like, it loosens, it relaxes the muscles in your shoulder and in your arm. So when you're running, if you run with your kind of hands just just touching together like that, apparently it loosens up those muscles. Um, so I don't know if you ever put yourself in that situation again, maybe you can uh, you can try that technique. Um, That's a brilliant tip, by the way, because the, there's a marathon in a couple of weeks, the Tulum Marathon, which is a, a beautiful town about half an hour from here, 40 minutes. Yes. And I'm thinking about having a crack at it. Yes, uh, awesome. It's going to be hotter than a camel's ass, but... Um, yeah, that's a great technique. Thanks very much for sharing. There you go. Yeah, and yeah, that'd be beautiful, man. I've, I've heard great things about Tulum. It's a, there's a very cool gym on the beach down there. I think that's all like um, uh, Flinkstone style, you know, um, wooden yeah. wooden weights and and pull up things. And it, it, it's it's a pretty cool uh, pretty cool vibe down there. I'm I'm told. So after the marathon, um, then you thought, well, look, I did I did 43. Let's knock out a 50. And then you decided to put yourself around the, the tan ultra, I think it was after that, and then started to start, just decided, uh, how, long, how long after the, the marathon did you then attempt an ultra marathon? So I signed up for the 100K the night after running the marathon. And I used the 50 kilometre as training for the 100 so I, so the the hundred was September, so this was this was like June, uh, yeah. So hold June. On. When, so when did so you it, start? When did you start running? I'm just gonna I'm gonna track this timeline a little bit. So when did you start running? Like the five k, like late 2017. 
217. Right. And then so and then you did the marathon. How long that after was, you started? That was in June 2018. Okay, and then yeah. it was five weeks later that I did the 50. Right. And then and then uh, July, August, September, and then two months later for the hundred. And then two months. Give or take, yeah. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. Okay. So it'd be interesting got- to ask you ask your parents or your father at least uh, what kind of whether he knows any kind of progression for that kind of insanity. Yeah. Look, you know, like I know in the book you mentioned about it, from what I understand, you know, they talk about if you if you're gonna be doing a like an ultra, you need a good year or two of training and that's with a base. You know, that's with a with a with a base. Um you know, when I did my first marathon, I went from the couch to marathon in about nine months um and that was with a with a, a structured plan like i had a, I had a trainer essentially because again just with the family dynamics um so you know i was cultivating towards that race and tapered off and did all the all the stuff you do but to go and just chuck the the sneakers on and just start you know banging out 20s 25s and 26s and then then into uh then to marathons and then a 50 and and then then the epic adventure that that you talk about in the book around the surf coast century it's um for anyone um listening it's one of the most beautiful races in the world there's some beautiful races around but um you know it starts in anglesey i think isn't it and and it goes up along the beach along the cliffs in anglesey and then onto the beach that first 25k um i did a um, a 30 i think or, or a 25k race which is the day before the, the surf coast century they do kind of like a, a smaller circuit races i did that one once that first 25k is beautiful and then you run up into the forest behind anglesey and um it, it's a beautiful race but um to to do the 100k and, and you you were you tell the story at the start where you um you were doing um uh you know karate kicks for the photo at the start of the race and you, you tore something or pop something in, in the glute and um, and then went off uh, on that adventure. Tell us a little bit about about that uh, the ultra story. So it was a fly kick to show off. That's right, the fly kick. You can take the show off out of the boy, but you can't take the boy out of the show. And 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 I didn't notice anything. I heard something pop, fairly innocuous. Mm-hmm. But at the fifty kilometer mark, after stopping for like, because they have you know four major stops plus a couple of other ones as well. I, I went to get out of the picnic chair that was set up for me and I was like, I'd lost all my strength in my right leg. And uh, and I found out later that I'd aggravated my iliotibial band, the IT band, which a lot of runners will know about. Mm. And it's a, it's a piece of, it's sinew, really. Mm. You, like it's a very strong, it can hold a ton of weight. And what it does is it, the, the glute muscle, uh, it kind of, I think it releases it, and so it drags the 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 knee up. So it it's rotating the knee in a way that's the m- most pain I've ever experienced in my life. More like, and I talk about this in the book. I know I'll ruffle a few, ruffle a few feathers here, but I reckon that was my experience of what childbirth might feel yeah, like. Yeah, I, I I was triggered a little bit by that when you said that. I'm like, <laughs> that's you know, I don't know, Ivan. Do you want to go that far? But yeah, I get it. I get it. I'm happy. I'm happy to because unless someone <laughs> unless someone that's had a baby has done an IT band and they've got a comparison, I'd love to, I'd love to find out. I'm sure that I'm sure we can find someone. We'll have to, we'll <laughs> yeah, have to find yeah. Someone. I'm yeah. sure I'll get some hate mail when it comes out, but. Uh, that that pain, like, 
was was the most pain I've ever experienced in my life. And I've been I've been in a lot of pain. And uh, but we'd raised a bunch of money for charity and we'd made a commitment to get, go through to the end and and the pain of failure far far outweighed the pain of uh, of what I was experiencing. Yeah. And um, and then, you know, it was ill prepared. As you say, you know, it takes a long time to prepare for these things. And some of the things that you miss out on, uh, learning how to run in those kind of conditions, it became incredibly cold. I didn't know a lot about electrolytes and nutrition and a bunch of other things that, mm-hmm. that ended up making for a great story. But at the time, yeah. I wanted to kill myself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, you know, you can read about it in more detail in the book, I suppose. But exactly the, the, the beautiful thing about it, Simon, is that, that – what it did is that it broke this glass ceiling in my own mind of mm-hmm. what I thought was then possible. And it flowed into other parts of my life in ways that I can't even quantify at this mm-hmm. point. And I now believe that everything is possible. I don't take no for an answer anymore. And that has been a huge, huge boost for me. And that negative self-talk that I, that's gone when you don't talk poorly of yourself, there's no reaffirming any of that malarkey. And so now I'm living the life of my dreams. And and like I said to you before, my life is literally a daily miracle. Yeah, and I think it is exactly that. Like, you know, that's like you're talking about the training. The, the training element, you know, is what te- prepares you for those, um, you know, for the, the experience, those times that, you know, that you're under un, under duress you fall back into your training you know when things get really bad you fall back into your practices so going and, and embarking on something like that um without the required training if we're honest about it and then pushing yourself mentally through those barriers and they're you know for anyone really bar maybe five people that can actually knock those kind of races out without breaking a sweat um you know, you're dragging yourself over over that line anyway a lot of the time. Um, and to do that in a way in which you did, and, and in the book you talk about, you know, hallucinating and, you know, the, the support crews falling to pieces and, you know, everybody's, you know, the impact of, of everybody in that situation. And, and again, I've been in those situations with um, support, <laughs> being in the support crew, um, you know, where, where it kind of starts to get really quite... Um, uh, uh, challenging for everyone there. And I, I know with the, yeah, like my first marathon to my second marathon, as I was saying, that second one, I actually did faster than my first one. Um, uh, I was probably a, a little bit more generally fit, but I wasn't race fit. So, and I really wanted to see whether I could achieve a faster time, um, you know, on that second race by just dragging myself through the race, which I achieved but the race sucked and, um, and also the recovery after it sucked. So I prefer the training next time. Um, but look, man, it's a, it's, yeah, it's a great, great story. And, and, you know, outside of that, was there any other kind of reflections from that, the race and from that kind of adversity training that you went through, you know, you talk a little bit of, one of the things I was really interested, um, to get a little bit of an understanding around is you, you speak a lot about that kind of cathartic release that was happening when you started running. Like it was, it was as if it was resetting the nervous system or something or triggering something inside you where you would you'd be releasing that kind of trauma and crying and things at different times. You know, could you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, I do talk about crying a lot in the book and, and most of it's tears of joy. Mm. I have interviewed more than 108 people on my podcast, many of whom are very, very smart people, including a Nobel uh, laureate who is a gastroenterologist and asked posed you know these questions to him. I, I have this theory and, and I'm, I love learning about this more and I'll always put my hand up and say that I don't have all the answers for this stuff. But, but toxins, as people know, are stored in the fat, in the human body. I believe that the body sees trauma as a toxin. And what, what we haven't touched on is I was losing quite a lot of body weight at that point, a lot of body, body fat rather before I'd sort of started to pound on all the muscle, I was putting on a little bit of muscle, but you know, I was losing a lot of body, body fat. And, and I think that my body was purging the toxin of trauma. And so when I would run and, you know, when I was doing training runs or whatever, 13 and 14 Ks, when I would switch over to that, that, that ketogenic fat burning mode from, mm -hmm. from carbohydrate burning, that's when I think it was triggering. There's also plenty of data that suggests that, the, the fat cells, the fat cells made up of three ketone bodies. And one of them is, is uh, alpha hydroxybutyrate, AHB, which is a, um, a deviation or a very close to gamma hydroxybutyrate. GHB, which people might have heard about, is known as the date rape drug. Mm -hmm. The body does create its own drug. Mm. And, and I think that explained a lot of the euphoria and maybe triggered a lot of the, the crying. Mm. And, and as I was losing the weight and getting faster and just dumping all that stored trauma, and that might sound a little bit far-fetched for a number of people, but I have witnessed too many of these amazing inst instances to, to dismiss it and have become deeply spiritual as a result. Not religious in any, any capacity, but very, very spiritual. And it's undeniable to me that there's some other forces at play. So. Well, it's interesting that you say that, you know, and that, you know, they say spirituality is, is um, uh, is is to experience God, you know, and, and a direct connection to God where religion in some um, aspects is more of a, um, a doctrine, a road um, uh, uh, to, to, to the divine, so to speak, or, or, or to God or whatever terminology you want to use. You said something really interesting, you know, around the hallucinations you were getting um, uh, and, and, you know, also that kind of release of trauma um, and you were saying that, you know, maybe ultra, ultra marathons um, would be a great replacement for psychedelics or substitute for psychedelics. What's quite interesting about that is, and I was just reading this um, um, recently, like this last week uh, in, in a psychedelic therapy book, because psychedelic therapy around mental health um, is becoming quite prominent around the world now. And you know, the, they call it the, the psychedelic renaissance is happening. There's a re-emergence of the science behind it all. But in ceremony, they, they talk about um, the purge. So on certain psychedelic substances, not all of them, but some of them, and in certain situations, you purge. So you'll, you'll throw up, diarrhea, um, all kinds of different purging occurs. And they say that the purging is exactly that, that it is the, it is the parts of yourself, the trauma that's being released. It's, it's actually the medicine is doing its work. It's when spirit hits body, the body, and it's the intersection of those two things. And it's, it's releasing, it's like an overwhelm and it releases the system and you purge those elements. You know, it's that shifting of that 
that stored energetics, you know, within the body. Um, and it can be a physical purge, you know, to the point where people are throwing up and coughing up black stuff and all kinds of things because the body's literally getting out that, that, that work. And, you know, um, I've spoken about it with a bunch of people over time. You run for 14 hours straight in cold and dark, you know, when it, with, a, with the ninja glute, you, you, you start to have those transcendent experiences. You start to have these out-of-body experiences. Um, so I could only imagine, you know, and I'm sure there's, there's people smarter than us that we can talk to that, you know, understands the science that's going on behind that. But there seems to be a really strong connection between, you know, ultra experiences, psychedelic therapy and that release of trauma in the, in the nervous system that's built up over time. And, and I think that must be that cathartic, that cathartic element to it must um, play a role, you know, in, in, in that kind of shedding that occurs. Yeah, it's, and it's really interesting. Uh, you've refreshed my memory on this whole psychedelics subject as well. Because I mean, where I'm living at the moment is the home of like ayahuasca and stuff. And it's not anything that I've had an opportunity to to get involved with. I'm still I'm still on the fence about how I feel for myself. I, I I'm a huge proponent for other people to to do whatever works well for them. Mm. I'm still on the fence if an opportunity presents itself, like you know, the universe is saying, "There you go, Laban, have a crack." Maybe I'll do it, mm. but uh, uh, yeah, it's it's a really interesting one, and uh, not the, for everyone. The, not well, not for everyone. But it, I've I've spoken to plenty of people that have done it, and they've mm. all benefited in some way, shape, or form from it. And uh, I've had plenty of conversations with doctors around using all kinds of alternate therapies for improving mental health, and you know. I, be, like I say in the book, the more I learn about life, the more I realise I know fuck all about it. Mm. And if more people put their hand up and we're open to that, we'd learn a lot faster, I think, because it makes me more curious. So I'm keen to explore all kinds of things, but uh, mm. very well, fascinating subject. Yeah, you're in the place for it, as you said. Um, uh, there's some amazing centres over there. Um, um, there's a, some amazing groups over there. And, you know, it doesn't even have to be about the psychedelic element to it as well. You know, even just ceremony and, you know, breath work now. And, you know, what you think about an ultra marathon, you're essentially doing, you know, cyclic breathing for 14 hours. Um, shit's going to get weird, you know, through that through that process. So there is, um, yeah, you, you're definitely in a, in, a, in a good place to explore that over there if that's that's something that you were, you were interested in. And, yeah, I just kind of reconnected. You know, you spoke about that element in the book around ultra running as a substitute for psychedelics. And when you talked about that cathartic release of the trauma, you know, it really started to paint some pictures for me around how those two things are connected. And and you talk a little bit uh, about uh, Bessel van der Kolk's uh, book, uh, The Body Keeps the Score, um, you know, just about that nervous system, you know, holding that trauma and finding ways to release it. And it's a, um, yeah, just once again, man, it's a, it's a great, story of transformation and, and the honesty that you bring to it and authenticity that you bring to it, it's awesome and um and it's, it's super funny man i was laughing all the way through it um you've you've developed a great writing style as well as um speaking style in in, in general so um yeah i really enjoyed it thanks so i mean, i appreciate that a lot and i uh i mean that that's exactly what you hope but like i said earlier when you when you write something and put your put your heart and soul into it really it's been a heck of a journey and um and I, and I want it to impact as many people as possible and that that trip to frankfurt was to investigate getting the book 
sold to to international publishers to get it translated into different languages. And I mm. and I happened to just meet a child psychologist at the Berlin Wall that I got chatting to, who specialises in translating from English to Hungarian. And we've got a meeting in a couple of weeks. And it turns out that Hungary, according to her, have the highest rates of suicide per capita in the world and huge alcoholic uh, tendencies. So if the book can be translated into Hungarian and, you know, help other people and the nuances aren't lost, then, you know, what a wonderful blessing that'll be. I'm so excited for it to come out and, and it's recorded in my voice as well, uh, which, which was a, that's a whole other experience to talk about. It was amazing. But one thing I do want to bring to the front that's, that's really important for me at least is that I was, I was really enjoying the running. Like it wasn't a painful experience for me apart from the the times that it became painful when I was injured, which was only a small part of it. And it was to do with diet. And I don't know whether you plan to discuss the diet at any point, but I had had suffered from an autoimmune disease for 17 years, which I was told was an incurable one. And, And it was through the discovery of a low carb diet that, that allowed me to lose the weight and for every kilo or so of weight that I lost, I would shave about 20 seconds per kilometre of my pace. Yep. And so when you lose as much weight as I did and got down to about 8.5% body fat at my leanest, I'm a bit heavier than that now, but it made running a really extraordinary experience for me. And But I also removed a lot of the inflammation from my diet and people that, that are carb loading for running, they experience a lot of pain if you can remove the the aggravators, whatever they might be, mm. and a lot of those can be plants or carbohydrates or whatever, you will you will enjoy the process of running and the healing and the recovery. It all ties into it. And and to give you some comparison, in July of this year, 2021, I ran a 50 kilometer uh, ultra, which is the same one that I ran in 2018, on zero sugar and zero carbs. Yeah, crazy. How did you do that, Laban? And I, and I was already in a ketogenic state when I started it. And I was tracking my blood sugar, my ketones before, during and after. And, and uh, I did it to, to prove to myself what was possible. Mm. But I was running on fat. And my recovery from that run was better than any run I've done ever. Yeah, it's an amazing part in the book, <clears throat> excuse me, where you talk about the, um, the carnivore diet and, and that, that transition. And, and you start to kind of dig in. Um, you know, quite a bit around, um, you know, that, that journey of diet. And I, I found that similar with, with running, especially that it's as if the body starts to no longer crave those substances, you know, no carbs and things, you can get that kind of, you know, that, that sugar glucose hit that you're looking for post races and what have you. Um, but it's funny how your diet tends to clean up as you start to make that transition as well. The body kind of wants to fuel with things and get to give it the, the appropriate energy um but yeah that's it's been a big one the carb loading versus the the um, ketosis um has been a a really big kind of transition i think in a lot of um a lot of the sports arena over the last x amount of years and um it's a, it's a great part of the book as well where you start to dig into that transformation around your diet and around the um, autoimmune disease and things and being able to um you know, change some of those those conditions and that, that situation that you were in as well. 
Yeah, and a really clear distinction is that I only talk about my own experience in the in the book. It's not a finger waggling exercise at all, no. and I hope it came across like that as well. It's just this is what this 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 is what has been the result of what I tried, and hey, might work for you too. Mm-hmm. And that's how I put it together. No, that's what I liked about the book, especially is that it was it was your book. You know, you weren't telling anyone else how to how to suck eggs, how to live. It was your experience, and it was you know things that and you would you know that again that authenticity of knowing what you don't know and being able to call those elements out of hey, look, this is just what worked for me. You know, you go and look for you because each body's different, each person's different, everything's subjective in that way, um, and you've got to find your you got to find your own way through it. You know, you've got to find your own way. It, 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 as you said, you know, the book's called Bet On You. You've got to take that opportunity to um, to find the things that work for you based on your body and your history and all those kind of things. And I like that you, the language that you use is really approachable in the book. And, you know, I think it's quite going to be quite a, you know, it's digestible for people. And I think it will, will um, yeah, I think it's going to have a, a great impact, man. It was really, really exciting uh, to read it and go through it all. So my next question for you, Simon, is when's your book coming out? So my book, uh, no. So um, I, I would say the plan is I've been I've been going through a bit of an interesting time at the moment, um, uh, just with the journey of my my business and kind of transitioning myself a little bit there uh, to create a little bit more space to do things like this. Um, you know um, that journey's um, uh, continuing and and probably. Um, has has a few years left in it yet, um, so I'd, I'd imagine I slowly work. If I if I do get the book out, it's something that I'll work on over the next couple of years. I kind of want to take time with it and go quite slow with it in in some respects. Um, uh, so yeah, no no real plans, just more in conceptual writing stages at this point. But um, but more on that another time. Well, one one question at the start that that you asked me that I we went off on a bit of a tangent when I was talking about the early doors is, is how the book came about. Mm. If you wanted some clarity on that. Yeah, sure. Uh, because I think that's a, it's a, an inspiring story for any potential writer. Cause this is my first book mm. and I haven't studied writing or done any courses on writing or really knew how to write. <laughs> and this all came about through the, the blessing of adversity with COVID. And I'd f- found my purpose as a as a speaker and was about to embark on my first speaking engagements in April 2020. And of course, all of those events were cancelled. Mm. And so I needed a platform to, to leverage my voice. And so I created the podcast series, Become Your Own Superhero, which will be rebranded uh, very, very soon. Uh, all will be revealed with that. It will still awesome. en- encompass a part of that, but yeah. uh, it's another exciting project to talk about later on. And... 10 episodes in, I managed to get my whale, uh, which was Les Brown or mm. Les Brown for those mm. Yanks that struggle with me, my pronunciation. <laughs> and Les Brown, for those who don't know, is regarded as one of the best living or dead speakers ever. And he's been given Golden Gavel, the, the best speaker, you know, for a, a litany of different organizations. He's a 76-year-old African-American guy with 10 kids. He's got five boys, five girls, twice survived prostate cancer, and he was married to Gladys Knight from The Temptations at one point. And he came on the podcast, and before we started the recording, 
I said to him, Les, what do you think of the name of the podcast, Become Your Own Superhero? And for anyone that's heard him speak, you'll you'll appreciate this. But for those who, who haven't, he just encapsulated everything that I hope people would think when they heard the name. Mm-hmm. And, and I was so in, endeared by his response that I just verbally diarrheaed my story of transformation to him without, <laughs> without his permission. But he received it so graciously. And he just listened intently. And when I finished, he said, congratulations, Laban. I said, thanks, Les. He said, do you have a book? And I said, no, I don't. He said, if you're going to be a speaker, Laban, you need a book for credibility. Mm. And he said, who was the most influential person in your life when you were five? I thought about it for a minute. I was like, oh, is it my grandma? Mm. And I realized despite her many, many flaws, it was my mum who I've loved dearly and have forgiven. And he said, what attributes did your mum give you? And I was like, oh, man, she was like unconditional, loving, spiritual, tenacious, yet fearless. He's writing all this stuff down. He looks up at me and he says, Laban, this is a God moment. He said, I'm going to show you how to monetize your passion. Mm-hmm. And for the next 10 minutes, he read back to me a blueprint for this book he wanted me to write called Bet on You. He said, Laban, you're going to write the book, get as much help or as not as you need. You're going to turn the book into a keynote presentation. You're going to turn the keynote to a three-day retreat. He said, even if you muck this up, you're going to make 200000 in the next 12 months. Hmm. And then he said, and I'm going to write the foreword for your book. Hmm. And getting a foreword by, by Les Brown for a book is like being endorsed to run for president by Barack Obama, whether you're a fan of him or not. It's a big deal. Hmm. And yeah. this was mid-May 2020. And I simply said, Les, if you're going to write the foreword to my book, I'll have it to you by June 30, six weeks later. And I punched out 30,000 words of bet on you during that first part of the lockdown, delivered it to his inbox at 8.30 p.m. on June 30, 2020. And in the process, changed my life forever. Mate, it's an amazing story. Um, Yeah, thank you so much for for coming on and and sharing it. It's... um, yeah, it's, and, and just the, the way you've done it in such a condensed amount of time and, and um, being able to articulate the journey in such an authentic way is, is super inspiring, um, especially for myself um, and I'm sure for anyone else that, that gets their hands on it, has a read or a, a, a listen to it out there. I especially just think at the moment, you know, there's so many people that have had to sit, you know, um, with their with themselves, with their trauma, and with with a, an, a traumatic collective experience that we're going on, and and you know, I, I truly believe, which is part of my kind of mission out there around this podcast, is you know, bringing light to stories like this, um, to new modalities of healing and transformation and uh, mental health, because um, it's just it's a it's just such an important subject that doesn't get enough. Um, enough attention out there so yeah like thank you so much again for for coming on and and thank you so much for the book and um uh really excited to um yeah to share this and get this out there and 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 connect people to your work um so on that note my friend is there anything else you wanted to to chat about today that you wanted to dig into that you wanted to share with our our lovely uh audience that maybe maybe listening to this well there's two things First thing, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, do it. Come on. Press the button. Thank you. Like, 
the courage that it takes to to put yourself out there in this platform, it, for those that haven't done it, is huge. It's huge, and not everyone has the courage that I have, and the unashamed who gives a fuckness, right? <laughs> and and what Simon's doing is amazing, and and. I don't know how many episodes you punched at now. Maybe a dozen. This will be number. This will be eight. This will be eight. This will be eight, so, right? I'm, I'm so, them. so uh, it's a huge, huge thing he's doing and helping a lot of people. And 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 if this resonated with you, you know, send it to someone that that you care about. If they get one one thing out of it, it's going to help, right? The second thing I'd say is that for people out there that are looking or listening to this, saying. Yeah, but Laban, stop. Stop saying negative shit about yourself. Stop it immediately. And there's a reason why. Because the moment that you remove it from your vocabulary, you'll start becoming conscious of how people speak around you. And you'll notice who's negative and who's not. And those people that are negative, cut them out of your life. And you don't have to text them and tell them they're no longer friends. Just distance them in a way that suits you and watch your life transform for the better. Whatever shit you went through, you've now got an obligation to use that gift of adversity to help other people. Service is the most wonderful form of cathartic behavior you can imagine. Don't carry the burden of tyranny. Share it. And share it with people that you trust and care about and watch the magic happen. Man, I love that. Um, it, it, it really is. You know, you, yeah, the adversity that you're talking about, that negative self-talk, I really think it's a conversation of self-awareness. And I think the adversity creates self-awareness. It shows you parts of yourself you didn't see, shows you parts of yourself that you could be. Um, and, you know, any tool or modality like your book, like your talks, um, like your podcast, um, you know, that, that helps people discover that part of themselves, um, that, that vulnerability um, and to own their story. Um, so I thought I'd leave you with something. The last time we spoke, you asked me a question that I wasn't comfortable to answer, um, uh, which was about a, a vulnerability around the type of person that you used to be when you transitioned and you asked me the same question and I couldn't or wasn't comfortable answering it. So I thought I'd gift you with that today. Um, to let you know that that's the the inspiration I've taken from reading your book and from meeting you um, was just that acknowledgement of of um, that process of thinking about who I was as a person in my my younger years. So this is my my little uh, my little statement that I wrote as I as I was reading through your book. Um, so Laban, I was a passive aggressive avoidant people pleasing drug addict. That's what I was when I was a kid. And that's and, and as I was growing up, and um, and you know you helped me uh, in in many ways cultivate that. And so yeah, I just want to thank you again, my brother. And um, yeah, good luck with the book and, and with everything else. And it was it was great having you on the podcast. Simon, mate, I'm so proud of you. That is a huge step forward. It'll make a lot of sense to people who read the book or listen to the book. Even if you think that you are functionally all there, the book is fucking hilarious. <laughs> Not just in my opinion, it's brilliant and you'll enjoy it. You'll get something out of it. Have a read and then you'll know exactly what Simon's talking about. Very proud of you, mate. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. I love you and what you're doing. And I'm so grateful that you that you thought that I was uh, a, good, a good enough guest to come on here and to share my story. So thank you for doing that.
No, absolute pleasure, mate. It was uh, it was awesome. Um, send my love to Anna. Have a great time over there, and, and I'm sure I'll get to connect with you soon. Um, but yeah, thanks everybody. Uh, great time. Thanks, Laban. Thanks again.